Welcome to Mill Resource Radio, where we highlight military and veteran support organizations. Hear directly from organization leaders and those who've benefited from their services. Thousands of organizations exist, but if you don't know about them, how do you seek their help? Join us for discovery, access, and knowledge about effective military and veteran organizations sharing their missions and accomplishments directly with you. And now here are your hosts, Linda Crater and Les Davis. We are very happy that you have joined in to listen with us today. We're going to be talking about the value and benefit of outdoor activities with families, wounded warriors, and veterans, and the enjoyment is only the very initial part of things. A lot of people don't realize that when you partake of activities with family, with fellow warriors, that there is so much greater benefit to it. And we have some amazing guests with us today. We start off with um, Commander Marissa McClure, who is the director of the Naval Academy Sailing. We're going to be talking about Wounded Warriors Sailing here in Annapolis, Maryland. And this I have a special soft spot for since I participated participate in these regattas as well. And we also have with us Paul Bollinger, who is involved with the Wounded Warrior Sailing Regatta from the very beginning and has been instrumental in growing it to include many more participants from Walter Reed and their families. So very happy to welcome you both to Military Network Radio. Good morning, Paul, and good morning, Marissa. Morning. Good morning, Linda. It's great to be here. It is good to be here. Um, I am really glad to have you on because I have seen the benefit of these events personally from watching, first of all, years ago when, as they came off the bus from Walter Reed, where I knew many of the participants, to now seeing it grow with far greater participation and a lot more participation from family members. And so... Maybe we start with you, Paul, and talk about how this event began and what the vision is for the future. Well, good morning, and uh, glad to have uh, Commander McClure on board uh, this talk as well this morning. She's instrumental in uh, bringing the Naval Academy sailing team to the regatta and uh, providing the leadership we need. In addition, uh, we're very fortunate to make this a a collaborative effort where we bring in the Chesapeake Region Accessible Boating, the National Sailing Hall of Fame, of course, the U.S. Naval Academy Sailing Team, also working with the Connected Warrior Foundation and Warrior Events. And uh, we also do a heavy amount of uh, work with Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and Fort Belvoir to encourage uh, wounded warriors to come to the sailing regatta which was started in September of 2012, and now we've just concluded our sixth regatta. We do two a year, one in April, one in September, and uh, we're able to offer sailboats from the Naval Academy as well as crab, and crab sailboats are uh, disabled accessible, so we're able to get warriors who are uh, triple amputees, uh, as well as wheelchair bound to uh, get on board and actually sail the sailboats. But uh, it's uh, been a great start since 2012, and this year we almost sold out the event with 43 warriors and family members. Linda. 
It's fantastic. I, I would love it if you would share a little bit about what happens when they first arrive. What is the process? Because I have seen such a metamorphosis of the arrival and then the introductions and sometimes the uncertainty because many people have never been exposed to sailing and then the difference afterward. Well, I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, getting them to the regatta is not something that's real easy. We have to uh, sell the program because many of the uh, warriors or soldiers or Marines that in some cases have never been on small boats and some don't even know how to swim. Mm -hmm. So I give them a huge amount of credit getting out uh, on these boats and participating in an actual race. But when they arrive, uh, we are very fortunate to have a relationship with uh, Vice Admiral Phil Cullum, who is the Deputy CNO, mm -hmm. and uh, also Assistant Secretary of the Army, Catherine Hammock, who owns uh, a sailboat herself. And both of those have been front and center in greeting the warriors as they disembark from the buses and other vehicles and are given a true VIP welcome to the regatta. And uh, in September, we're fortunate to have the U.S. Naval Academy band perform, and uh, they play the fight songs for each of the services. <laughs> and then uh, the national anthem, which really gets everybody excited about heading out to the boats and getting out on the course. It is actually a very moving spectacle. For those of you who are not familiar with Annapolis, this is all held down at the city dock, which is a, is a beautiful spot with the Naval Academy off to one side and the Capitol behind you and Main Street. So this attracts a great deal of positive attention to our wounded warriors and their families. And that's a, a sort of a an accessory to everything because it's also written up in the papers and it obviously makes for an excellent photo opportunity. I was, I believe last spring, correct me if I'm not, if I'm wrong, uh, Paul, that we also had the governor there. And we certainly did. We did. And it was before hoping. he was uh, diagnosed with cancer. And it was probably one of the few times that you had this huge group of people just all united to support our wounded warriors and their families. So it was terrific. But I'd like to bring in Marissa as well because the Naval Academy sailing team brings so much to the table as well. So picture this wonderful uh, VIP welcome, everyone getting off the buses and, and really being welcomed and embraced. And then you're introducing them to these young midshipmen who are very, very special. So, Marissa, could you speak a bit about them? Sure. Thanks, Linda. Um, so we have two intercollegiate sailing teams in our sailing program at the Naval Academy. We have an offshore team, which has a varsity and a junior varsity. And then we have our intercollegiate team, which is the inshore dinghy um, sailing team. And so they kind of alternate depending on the season, who's participating um, who's available based on their competition schedules, but they, they all participate at one time or another, and they really enjoy it. Um, so we offer um, to the event 10 of our Navy 26-foot Colgates, which are kind of basic keel boats that we use 
um, to teach all of our midshipmen how to sail. So when they come in as freshmen, they all get uh, about 12 hours of on-the-water training, um, learning how to sail these particular sailboats. And with each boat that we um, offer to the event comes a midshipman skipper and a crewman um, to take the warriors out and actually compete in the race. It's it's so um, wonderfully integrated. I love how it all brings everyone together. But I, I think I've been most struck by talking to the midshipmen afterward um, when I see the benefit it gave to them. Can you perhaps express yeah. some of the things you've heard about when they participate for the first time and how they feel about this event? Yeah, it's really, um, you know, people thank us for volunteering to help out, but it's really mutually beneficial um, for the midshipmen. Uh, they get exposure to these wounded warriors um, that's really impactful to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, For one, they get to share their love of sailing and their love of racing mm-hmm. um, and share something that, you know, they spend a lot of time doing, and that's really nice for them. Um, but they also get to interact with the, these heroes of our country and kind of get a feel for some of the interactions they're going to have once they get out into the fleet, um, whether they go uh, Navy officers or Marine Corps officers. And I think it's it's just a really great opportunity for both sides of the equation to get to know each other um, and all the midshipmen talk about what a tremendous experience it is going out there and, and seeing um, how the warriors sort of respond to the challenge of sailing because it's very um, emotionally and physically challenging and seeing them um, with the satisfaction of doing doing it well and competing uh, they really, really enjoy the experience. I, I concur with that. And I think one of the things you brought out, I, I want to mention, and that is the aspect of competition. Here you have people who've come off this bus. They're not sure what they're going to undertake. It can be absolutely pouring rain and high <laughs> winds, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter. You'll still go out. And that's when I see the competitive edge of every one of our participants kick in. It's not just your midshipmen. So that camaraderie, do you hear talk of that as well? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone in the military, um, we we tend to be very competitive people and we want to excel and do well at everything we do. Um, So even if they have no experience, they still come out and they want to compete and they want to win. And of course, the midshipmen embrace this because they're highly competitive young people. Um, and, that, and that's part of what they really enjoy about it is is the the drive that they all have to to do well and to and to win the race. Well, and I've worked on the race committee boat, and let me tell you, there is nothing held back. They are still operating under the strict rules of sailing and competition, and nobody lets somebody get by. Mm -hmm. This is definitely run like a regular regatta, and it is great fun. And they they really seem to enjoy when there's calling back and forth between the boats because this is, you know, who's beating who. Um, (laughs) The other thing... Um, Paul, maybe you can mention this. In recent regattas, you've also been including children of our wounded warriors. 
Oh, most definitely. Uh, that's one of the big selling points that we make with uh, Walter Reed in particular, that this is just not an event where tickets are given to the Wounded Warriors to go sit, uh, watch a Redskins game or a Nationals game or NASCAR. Nothing uh-huh. wrong with that. But you're just sitting there and observing, whereas when the family members come, they're all actively engaged in the sailing of the boat, even as simple as shifting their weight from the windward side to the leeward and back and forth, or hauling in the lines and sheets and turning the tiller. So that is the engagement in the family dynamics that we see, whereas there may be limitations for them to do this kind of uh, activity uh, anywhere else. They're in a small boat. They're working as a team together. And you're right. There's a little bit of smack being talked between the boats, <laughs> and it's very competitive, but it adds to the excitement. You know, you're absolutely correct, and we will come back with more of the details of this after a short commercial break. And we have with us Commander Mercer McClure and Paul Bollinger. We'll be right back. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. Are you a family caregiver in the military community? Join us on VeteranCaregiver.com. In the military and veteran community, there are 5.5 million caregivers of our nation's injured, ill, and wounded. Whether your family member served in World War II or in the most recent Iraq and Afghanistan conflict, there are unique needs of military and veteran caregivers. Navigating any medical system takes skill and help in obtaining good care. Veteran Caregiver has access to a rich network of advocates and organizations to assist you. Find excellent resources, short informative videos, an active Facebook community, and empathetic support. Veteran Caregiver supports those from every service branch and those who served in any conflict. Need information on sandwich caregiving, EFMP, or aging issues? VeteranCaregiver.com provides information and community to those managing busy lives with compassionate care. That's VeteranCaregiver.com. Support for those who care. Welcome back. We're here talking about the importance of events with our Wounded Warriors and their families, and specifically the Annapolis Wounded Warrior Sailing Regatta that happens twice a year, along with some other activities in Annapolis, which is close to Walter Reed. Paul, I'm going to direct the next question to you. I know that you have been very instrumental in talking to the organizations, which you mentioned earlier, that are participating, but getting the attendees and talking about the growth of the event, can you perhaps start with how you began with the smaller group, but then what grew it? What were some of the adventures, I'll put that, uh, with Walter Reed and Belvoir, and, and trying to talk to people about something that might be quite unusual for them to consider for Wounded Warriors? Well, Linda, we did have very humble beginnings because as big an idea as we had and the, and the number of groups who were participating. At that time, I worked for Boeing, and Boeing brought 40 volunteers dressed in Boeing blue T-shirts to help work the event. And when the Walter Reed bus pulled up, three wounded warriors stepped off the bus. <laughs> 
I have one of those blue shirts. <laughs> I was, I was there, right? Well, everybody was looking at me like, "Okay, Bollinger," and and uh, <laughs> so from there we went back, and as they say in the military, we uh, reconnoitered and uh, <laughs> figured out what we could have done better. Which we we found out that we needed to have more personal engagement uh, with the warriors at Walter Reed. We're not allowed to use the word recruiting, but we're you know encouraging them and informing them right uh you know what the what the event is about and uh with the naval academy we've had an ensign or a lieutenant commander and then uh, one or two midshipmen join us uh at uh, Walter Reed, which helps because I'm sort of an older person and the uh, wounded warriors, you know, they're in their 20s and they have somebody there's a little more affinity with the uh, Naval Academy uh, representatives in uniform. And they're, and they're always mesmerized when they see the ensign with a star on their epaulette mm-hmm. and they go, aren't you a little young to be an admiral? <laughs> so... That throws them off, but it's also an icebreaker. And, and we Absolutely. show them. So oh, sorry, when, you, when you spoke to them, um, the reception has obviously grown over the years. And has that been because of the families coming back and talking about it? Has it been because there's been closer approximation of communications with all of the event coordinators and your visits to Walter Reed? All of the above? I would have to say definitely all of the above, and also the inclusion now of the Connected Warrior Foundation and Warrior Events, who keep databases of warriors that they have uh, attending the various events that they offer throughout the year, and they make sure they get notified. And, And they're no longer at Walter Reed. They're still wounded warriors, but they're out living on their own now with their families, and so there is a core uh, level of uh, warriors that they're able to attract. We've now reached out to Fort Belvoir that has a, a very strong program as well, also some beautiful housing for wounded warriors, and stepped up our efforts with Walter Reed. And so with those four groups and, as you mentioned, the returning uh, participants mm-hmm. who come back and I mean an example this year was uh, or this September uh, we had a wounded warrior who came back with his with two daughters mm-hmm. and when he was here in the spring he brought one daughter so this time he brought a second daughter and he said next April I'm going to bring my wife and another child so you're going to have a boat full on that one one family one boat they're going to be there so <laughs> It, it'll be exciting. So, you know, I think reaching out and informing them, and, and now we're getting calls from as far away as Philadelphia and Norfolk, Virginia, uh, actually North Carolina, on the event and how they can come and participate. So, uh, you know, we see that as a boon. And right now we've got 46 seats on these 14 boats that we use. So we're sort of thinking and and you know, scratching our heads about where do we take it from here if we needed to expand it or do we? Very good point. And um, I'd like to come back to that later if you don't mind because I really want to emphasize the fact that when wounded warriors are going through their recovery journey on that pathway, that continuum of care, there is often very little 
normalcy or independence and when they get on these boats and they're doing things they have never done before and with their family members the benefits go far beyond that day and that's where i know that you have received notes afterward saying i don't know how to swim i come from kansas i had no idea what this was like but it also introduces them to new friends so you're building that network of people that can help them outside the event or return to an event or bring in others to come to the event once again connection is so important in the military and when you are a wounded warrior there is a tendency to lose some of those connections as you move through the various phases of recovery would you agree with that i certainly would and uh not that it's a selling point that we offer for the regatta, but obviously having people like Vice Admiral Phil Cullum and Assistant Secretary Catherine Hammock there, these warriors are getting an opportunity to speak with four-star and three-star level officers, and they've let them know what some of the issues are and concerns that they have, and I can tell you that some of those have been acted on by the uh, leadership when they get back to the Pentagon, and one even involved bringing uh, a warrior's husband to this area where she was receiving treatment at Walter Reed in order for them to be together. And that was not something that was on his uh, plan until uh, the assistant secretary stepped in and, and made it happen. And, and that had a life-changing effect for this particular uh, warrior who was in her early 20s and it uh, had an injury from a helicopter crash that first brought her to the uh, Wounded Warrior Sailing Regatta in a wheelchair, and her mother was joining her and said this was the first event in two months since she'd been at Walter Reed that she'd actually left the hospital. And uh, she came back the next year uh, uh, on a walker. And so from there, she's not using a walker any longer and uh, is well on her way to recovery. Which is absolutely fantastic because oftentimes you don't know that you've recovered as much as you actually have. We always encourage wounded warriors and their caregivers to take pictures from time to time just to mark it. You're showing another marker where someone knows that they have improved between that six-month time period. I think there's also a a funny aspect to this I'd like to bring in. Um, And Vice Admiral Phil Cullum did this one. Do you recall uh, the time, Paul, where we were on your boat, I believe, and there was a big sign that said, Beat Army? Do you remember that? And the oh, yes. boats were all full of, of Army sailors. And, of course, the, your boat was full of Navy people. And so there is a, a funny uh, interchange between the services that goes on as well which adds to the fun as well as you had some retired admirals on the boat who, again, they mingled just as the two you mentioned do. And so you are bringing in life experiences that just don't happen on the normal uh, event schedule. I think you're right, Linda. It's a generational uh, range that goes from the 80s down to eight years old. And the military families, by being there as families, the children are intermingling and playing with each other before they're getting on the boats and then afterwards at the pizza lunch and the award ceremony. 
and uh, they're having a great time together. And, and again, the military is all about being a family. And again, that's one of the strong suits for this particular event that you're in a boat with your family. You're competing against other families in boats and uh, you're close enough to be able to yell things back and forth to each other, to see each other and to show each other what uh, you can do on your boat to make it go faster. And uh, I think it was said earlier that uh, they're very competitive, and yes, they are, uh, and they don't let little things bother them. So when it is cold and rainy, uh, we've apologized for the weather, and uh, the refrain that I remember hearing from a a wounded warrior who had some uh, PTSD was, he goes, this was nothing. (laughs) It doesn't bother us at all. That's exactly right. It it does take you outside your comfort zone, perhaps, but that's what it's all about. Marissa, I'd like to ask you about that generational aspect. We have just about a minute and a half before our next break. The midshipmen must also be affected by being introduced to these former admirals and the generational uh, breadth of this event. Sure, and you you would think that with so much time between their their sort of career um, time, there would be some major differences. But it's amazing when they get together how much you don't really see that. Um, and the you know the uh, more experienced uh, officers love to tell their sea stories, and the midshipmen love to hear them. Um, and we also uh, us more experienced folks like like to kind of live vicariously through the midshipmen um, and. A lot of us wish we could go back uh, to start over uh, where they are, and so it's it's really an enjoyable experience for both sides of that. And, and I've watched them. They seem to thoroughly enjoy what's going on, and I think it offers an accessibility, not just to these important people, but an accessibility to these people as human beings and and men and women who are really interesting and who have the same life values as they do. And I I think that's something that you can't almost quantify. You just have to experience it, and it's extremely positive. We will be talking more about the organizations involved and the sailing events itself, plus the benefits of participating in outdoor activities as we go through the rest of our program with you today. And we just are very glad that you've joined us. We are talking to Commander Marissa McClure from the U.S. Naval Academy and Paul Bollinger, retired naval uh, alumni. And we are very, very pleased to have you. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. the millions of women each month who listen to Wise Health for Women Radio. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Join us for revitalizing conversations on fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging new, healthier perspectives. You provide a special spark to those around you, and you manage many roles, entrepreneur, mom, wife, coach, friend, daughter, and more. Here's a great way to inspire and nurture you. On Wise Health for Women Radio, host Linda Crater and her amazing guests share how to move toward your wishes and dreams and find what is possible in your busy life. If not today, then when? Take steps to flourish over 40. 
Join us on Wise Health for Women Radio, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on iTunes and more at wisehealthforwomenradio.com. Helping women thrive. We're continuing on, and I'm very pleased to let you know that our co-host, Justin Constantine, has joined us at the half hour. Justin, you were talking that you had a question for both either Paul or Marissa. Yeah, thank you, Linda, and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to come back on as a co-host. Now, Paul, we were talking over the break a little bit about relationships that develop based on this program. So I'd like to expand on that a little bit and just as a precursor, um, Give my background, I've done a lot with Wounded Warrior Golf and also some rafting uh, trips out west. And I do, I do think there's a huge benefit to folks coming to these events, especially if they come more than once, where uh, I have friends who I've met through these different outings. So I'd just like to explore that with you uh, to see if that's what you've experienced as well with the Warriors and caregivers who come to your events. Sure. Uh, Justin, they, um, you know, the Wounded Warriors come to, into uh, Walter Reed in particular, and uh, they're doing everything they can to uh, help them and get them sufficient to leave as soon as possible uh, through their surgeries, through their therapy, whatever sure. it is. So uh, there can be a high level of um, uh, transition of, of the different warriors who come to the event, but we have a core group now who've been to uh, two or three events, and particularly if they won a trophy, they seem to show up again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> funny how that works, right? I thought it was the pizza, Paul. Well, yeah. the pizza's good, and you know the pizza's hot, particularly when the day is cold. It's sure. uh, particularly they love that pizza. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, the, the relationships that some of them have built is, is getting stronger, and they've gone back better yet, I think, Justin, and, and recruited other friends and warriors to come to the event uh, as their, you know, battle buddies. Yeah, I, I really like seeing that, too, because, you know, so much, I guess, in life, this is true, but certainly in the Wounded Warrior community, so much is word of mouth and personal recommendations. And so that's, you know, the highest accolade when one of your attendees brings someone new or recommends you because that means you have a, a big thumbs up from them and they want to, you know, extend that the fun time they had to, to a friend of theirs as well. Uh, we, re- we really saw it in one example where, uh, again, this uh, triple amputee brought his daughter and wife to the event and uh, they had a great time, and he said, okay, I want to go sailing again tomorrow. Oh, wow. And he said, I'm going to bring my mother this time. <laughs> so uh, we let him know that the Chesapeake Region Accessible Boating, or CRAB, offered a sail-free Sunday the very next day. So all he had to do was go to Sandy Point Park yeah. and uh, – bring his family, and they would put him back on the Freedom 20s that are disabled, accessible, have the seats with shoulder uh, harnesses and lap belts, Mm -hmm. and that swivel to the windward side of the boat when it tacks. So perfectly comfortable, perfectly safe. 
and uh, he went out the next day. And, and that's the other nice thing about having crab involved in the uh, regatta is that they offer sailing basically from April to October that the Wounded Warriors could even form their own club if they wanted and sure. go out to uh, uh, sail on crab boats. Yeah, that's great that you are, have aligned with an institution like that because as we've kind of already talked about, while you're in the hostel, while you're inpatient, you know, so much of it is just on getting better and just kind of figuring out what the heck is going on around you until you're until they send you home or, or to wherever you're going to be living. And so then when, when they can come at their leisure to your event and it's, and it's aligned with a bigger group that has other resources – I think that's fantastic because, really, while you're in the hospital, it's hard to think about these these fun events because, you know, you're in the middle of of trauma. But afterwards, now you have a program that's in place long term. You have other groups that want to work with you. And so there are options that can, can, you know, that way a wounded warrior and his his or her family who has a busy schedule can find different times to come and participate. Most definitely, and, and as you said, uh, they go back home, and home is just not here in the Washington area. It's all right. over the United States, and right. that's where the National Sailing Hall of Fame comes in, and they are working with their members who are yacht clubs all over the United States to put together uh, a Wounded Warrior Sailing Squadron that would take the uh, program that we have in Annapolis and standardize it so that – we can give them uh, a guidebook on how to put on a regatta of this nature and work with the local hospital or VA to attract the warriors to it and host a, a very nice event, you know, from Florida to California, yeah. you name it. I, and I think uh, you're being part of the Naval Academy is, is the gold standard. So whatever you put out certainly will be will be treated as such, and, and you're in a unique position to emphasize that wounded warriors <clears throat> includes um, post-traumatic stress, and, and it's not just someone who's missing a limb or someone like me who has facial injuries, um, that, that, that we come in all shapes and sizes, and it's important to emphasize to the squadrons that to know that. Um, so that so that some one of their folks doesn't ask that embarrassing question like, "Oh, you don't look wounded to me," um, which is innocent by in nature, but it comes across, you know, terribly. Most uh, I, I I feel and hear yeah. everything you say, and uh, you're dealing with a lot of people involved in these events. But I can tell you, uh, when you have professionals, uh, and I use that in the highest sense of the sure. term when you're dealing with midshipmen who are these are young men and women who are flat out leaders among leaders and they know how to interact with wounded warriors whether they had instructions or not and the respect that's communicated between the two is um you know it's palpable you you feel it you see it oh no doubt and that's why i think it's perfect for you to leave this because who 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 would understand? What other group would understand it better than yours? So I think I think whatever, um, whether it's a whether it's a webinar or it's a handbook or something that you're going to distribute to the other uh, yacht clubs that want to be interested, you, you, of course you'll include this type of information, and I think people will, will give it the attention it deserves because, as I said, who know who would know better than a midshipman on how to talk and relate to a wounded warrior. Well, 
they um, they do an exemplary job. And again, working with the people at Walter Reed, who, you know, it's been going over several years now, and you know everybody can learn something new and different uh, from this experience. Yeah. And as, as Vice Admiral Cullum likes to say, uh, and he, he picked this up from a warrior. He didn't think of it himself, but you know they're <laughs> recovering warriors. They're, they right. don't look at themselves right. as wounded. Yeah, when I was on the federal task force a few years ago, it was the recovering warrior um, task, task force. force. So, yeah, right. and it was designed, you know, for for obvious reasons that we're in, we're in um, it's, it's part of a spectrum here, and we're recovering. And the idea is to one day move past this stage and and to be the one that's helping others and to be productive members of society. And you know, this is something that happened to us that we're not defined by it. It's just you know, a temporary phase of our life. Well, let me know if we need to change the name of the event, Justin. No, no, I'm not saying that. I think, I think you know, your, the name of your event is good. People know immediately who your demographic is and who you're dealing with. I'm talking about more of a mindset. Most definitely. And, and again, yeah. we're, uh, we're getting the VA interested now, and they have asked me to come speak to the VA in D.C., to the therapists and some of the uh, veterans there to start to create a link with uh, their hospital and uh, perhaps use it as the basis for building uh, the National Sailing Hall of Fame's efforts for a sailing squadron that would offer uh, sailing uh, programs for wounded warriors all across the country. Wow. Um, you know, and that, that sounds pretty impressive. And I, I think, though, that um, the emphasis, you know, on post-traumatic stress is all I would imagine if I'm a good example that all the folks who are coming out of Walter Reed, um, you know, they all have we all have physical injuries and I have to believe that every one of us has some level of post-traumatic stress along with that. And so we get a lot of attention. And so the folks who are coming to your program, you know, probably a lot of them came out of Walter Reed. The, um, the more folks from our community who we can encourage to come to these events, who don't have physical wounds but have invisible wounds, to come and participate and, and recognize that we cherish them and what they're going through just as much as someone with physical wounds will make our community that much stronger. And I know that's important to you as well. Oh, most definitely. I, I mean, I'm just reminded of one of our first regattas where uh, a young African-American soldier with PTSD uh, was there with his mother. And his mother saw the trophy, and she said, I want you to win me that trophy. <laughs> I remember that. I didn't have to say a thing. He, he had right. an incentive put into him by his mother. And uh, ultimately, while he didn't win the trophy, we gave her the trophy for the Spirit Award. Well, yeah, it sounds like she deserved it. I, th I think with the – not to belabor this point, but with the post-traumatic stress, a lot of um, – of, of having healthy recovery from that uh, is being around other folks that you know and trust and to engage in fun activities like you used to uh, while you're on active duty. So um, your event, your regatta and is part of that. And, you know, getting, getting like-minded people around each other, having a fun day, rain or shine, is a big part of the recovery. I've, I've participated in a number of different events similar to yours. And so I, I, I can, you know, testify the value and the strength of that. 
So I'm, know, I'm, I, just, I'm, I, glad, I'm, I'm just glad that using, you're I'm everybody. just picturing the, the regatta itself. I did want, I think you just gave me a perfect segue. First of all, I want to say thank you to Paul and to Marissa for joining us this morning and talking about the Wounded Warrior Sailing Regatta and the inclusion of the Naval Academy Midshipmen, etc. I am grateful to you for bringing this on and talking about the return to normalcy on the recovery journey. Our second guest coming on after the break will be talking about secondary PTS, which is also something that has helped with the sailing regatta by including the families and the children. So this is a, a very timely segue into our final segment. And I do want to thank you all for participating in talking about this event that's very near and dear to me geographically as well as by heart. So thank you so much. Uh, any last words that you'd like to add, Paul or Marissa? Oh, thank you for having me, and we look forward to the next <coughs> next spring. Absolutely, and we'll make sure we get that information out. We're Mill Resource Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. a dynamic woman? Sandra Beck and Linda Crater host Dynamic Women Talk Radio, bringing lively weekly shows in a roundtable format with influential guests from around the globe. This amazing tribe of diverse and accomplished women share their candid views on topics such as reputation, handling rejection, loyalty, what is sexy, overthinking, blended families, and much more. Discussions are joyful, with freedom to address topics from various perspectives with candor, respect, and no judgment. These are the conversations you wish you could have with all your family and friends. Dynamic women have lived their lives boldly, with unexpected and sometimes undesired turns in the road of life. Yet detours and bumps bring opportunity, personal growth, more authenticity, and a fresh outlook. Join our welcoming tribe of Dynamic Women each Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time, also on iTunes, and more information at dynamicwomentalkradio.com. Celebrating vibrant, charismatic women everywhere. joined by another guest today, a wonderful guest that we're very glad to have come on and talk to us about secondary post-traumatic stress. I'd love to welcome Camille Hall. She's Associate Professor at the University of Tennessee College School of Social Work, and we are just very keen on discussing this topic, which we briefly mentioned before the break. But I, I'm just going to introduce you with the effect of and the thought that secondary PTS is something that maybe people are not aware of. And perhaps you could start with that. So welcome to the show, Camille. Thank you so much, Linda. And um, I wanted to begin in just talking about what exactly secondary um, trauma is. And it starts with the caregiver, namely the spouse's efforts of giving emotional support um, to the individual who has suffered a traumatic event. <laughs> Uh, attempting to support them and understand their feelings and experiences. And these significant others can take on the traumatized person's feelings, their experiences, and even the memories as their own. And then the trauma symptoms begin to develop. So first of all, let's look at the context of our current um, 
active duty and veteran members. And the majority of those individuals are males. So we're talking about females who are mostly at risk for experiencing secondary trauma. Although uh, we do have 15% of women who are in the military. So males are equally at risk. So let's look at some of the symptoms that occur when we talk about secondary trauma mm-hmm. um, that are associated with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of people are familiar with that term. And some of those symptoms include intrusive thoughts, um, chronic fatigue, uh, sadness or anger, um, experiencing some poor concentration, um, second-guessing themselves. I have a lot of military spouses or caregivers come in and just begin to you know, wonder about the decision making in their home and they feel detached, not only from the um, the soldier, but also from their family members and friends. There's some emotional exhaustion, a little bit more than usual and some fearfulness. Um, they become a little bit more hypervigilant um, about their children and looking out for them. Um, some shame. That's also according to that, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. And there are some physical illnesses that occur also. And so what we want to talk about is these symptoms of having a headache. It's a little bit more than usual, like a headache because the weather has changed. I've experienced some of that myself here in the southeast, but some difficulties breathing. It may mimic uh, a panic attack or something of that nature, and just a heightened sense of vulnerability, Um, difficulty trusting others as well, and the Mm -hmm. emotional numbing are common factors that family members also experience when they... um, are exposed to the memories or events that the service members would share with them. So I want to slow down and make sure I'm not going too fast because I think a lot of times when we list symptoms, people say, oh, I have to have, I have to experience all of those symptoms. You don't. What I think is important for our listeners to understand is, is that if these symptoms are occurring more than usual and you're noticing a pattern, especially after the service members has returned home and you've engaged in trying to manage your household, you probably want to begin to develop a checklist and pay more attention to it. I also know that lots of times when military uh, spouses or caregivers have come in, that their friends have noticed a change and how they interact with them. And if they're working, their colleagues have also pointed out some differences in their behaviors. So I'm open to any questions. Yeah, I was going to say, Justin, did you have a question? Well, I, would, I just want to add to our kind of, not a question, but when I, I went through uh, counseling for post-traumatic stress for a year and a half, and my wife could definitely know, I went every week, and my wife could definitely notice when I went and when I didn't. So it's interesting that you pointed out about the friends noticing that as well. I thought she was, I thought she was making it up, but I guess she actually was telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to have to talk to you. <laughs> that's, that's a good, that's a really, really um, good point. Justin, because I think a lot of times when um, we're trying to adjust to whatever small changes and, of course, adjusting to a service member coming home is a huge change. But we're we're expected just to just, you know, hop in, do what you need to do. And that doesn't always occur as seamlessly as you think is happening. And if your spouse is noticing a difference in your behavior after you've had 
you know, a session or two. We can only imagine what's happening to the caregiver because I don't think we pay enough attention to the caregiver and what their experiences are. I think we pretty relegated, pretty much relegated that to the back burner. And I know since the Vietnam War, um, the vet centers and the VA have paid more attention to the experiences of the caregiver. And really, I believe that this whole phenomena of secondary um, trauma came about as a result of caregivers um, who were experiencing a lot of emotional uh, problems and some physical problems as well as a result of having to step in and more or less hold the family together. Were you going to say something? I'm just going to, I'm going to agree with you because um, no caregiver was already, well, most caregivers weren't already a caregiver. They haven't had training. And most of them, at least as, as it relates to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, most of them are young and probably have a couple of kids also. And so it's a huge, it's a huge burden. It's a huge um, task, a huge challenge that they have to undertake with no training and often very little support. And, and it's not like there are, like me, I was a Marine. I was tied into my unit. I had gone through a ton of training, not on how to survive an injury, but just how to be resilient and strong. But a caregiver doesn't have any of that. And so I can, I, I firmly understand and believe in secondary post-traumatic stress and how it can happen because life is hard as a caregiver and you're not getting the care that you need a lot of the times. For sure. And what you mentioned, the family composition, a lot of our soldiers are, the majority are um, National Guard or reservists who are going to OIF, OEF, and OND. And mm-hmm. they aren't connected to a post or a base or right. what you. So they're out in the community. And so they don't have the same resources. And they don't have some other spouse or caregiver who can say, I know what you going what you're going yeah. to isolate. The same thing happens for children. I mean, they're in the right, school right. system and what we're trying to do is educate um, the local school system to understand what the children may be experiencing. And sure. and and that's important because they can also um suffer from secondary traumatic stress because if the service member is home and he is having nightmares or whatever, the yeah. children are part of the household <laughs> and they're having to contain this emotion as well. And we also know that interpersonal relationships are impacted as well. I've known a lot of service members who come in and say that I'm, you know, my relationship is really stressed. Yeah. And you have to ask the caregiver what is going on with you and the children. I think so often we forget about those things, but it's important. And I know as of late, there's been a lot more research to suggest that families and the caregivers need to pay more attention to their own individual care and yes. what's and what's happening with them. And I think it's important. And Linda, thank you so much for having this opportunity to talk about if the family is not um, whole and being taken care of, we don't have healthy soldiers, uh, either reserve or the guard. Go ahead. You're absolutely right. And I, I think one of the things that has me spellbound um, when I go and talk to groups or have you on, and this is one of the reasons we had you on, is many people don't even know that secondary trauma, secondary PTS, generational PTS, call it what you will, exists. And then when you say, has this been happening to you? They immediately, the light bulb goes off and there's a relief to knowing 
that you're not losing your mind, that these things are, are naturally absorbed as you're listening to stories and having the experience of living with someone who has perhaps severe PTSD or has had uh, triggered episodes. And so the communication is often the first thing that they notice is different. Is, is that what you're finding in your studies? Exactly, exactly. I, it, it, and I mean, it goes without saying because most often the female has the responsibility of being the communication right. moderator in the family, the emotional manager of the family. And if they're experiencing, you know, these intrusive thoughts or, mem- or memories, or if they're having some physiological changes that are occurring, there's an imbalance that naturally occurs. But if they aren't aware of what's going on with them and they don't have some frame of reference, that becomes a problem for them. So let's go quickly into talking about what are some of the prevention and intervention strategies. Mm-hmm. And the first one being is that we're talking about this issue, get some type of education, some psychoeducation. You know, as we begin to think about this um this phenomenon I thought about the reservists and the guards people who are not connected to a post or base and they have what they call um, family support group family readiness mm-hmm. groups mm-hmm. and sometimes the units have these particular organizations intact and sometimes they don't and that makes it difficult the other thing is i suggest that um caregivers um participate in some type of self-care group in the communities. There are some that are out there through the vet center and to the VA. They'll give you resources and proper nutrition. Begin to monitor if you've made significant changes in your, um, your eating habits. Get a lot, get a lot of rest and exercise. The same thing with your children. You want to pay attention to their nutrition, if they're exercising, if they're resting, and do some stress reduction activities. Yoga, taking a walk, I mean, some mindfulness. These are things that are readily available now through the internet. So these are just some things that I would suggest that you could do on your own. And if, in fact, those things are not helping you, get some professional counseling. You're absolutely right, because I think caregivers are, uh, and, and family members in general, whenever there's something awry in the household, the, the eating, the sleeping, the exercise all go out the window. So we have a very short period of time left. Camille, how do people get in touch with you? And I should mention also that this is in partnership with the Smith College School of Social Work and the programs that they run. And so how do they get in touch with you? Is there a URL or a contact well, actually, um, my email address, jhall39 at utk.edu. If you email me, I'm always on the Internet. I respond promptly. Um, you can also call me at my office, 865-974-1914. The beautiful thing about the Internet is I don't have to be in my office to get a voicemail. It comes through email. And I can respond to you immediately. Camille, thank you so very much for being on with us today. We will have you back again to talk in the future. Thank you for listening to Mill Resource Radio. For more information, go to millresourceradio.com.